romance scams, bugs, worms, and Revil ransomware. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. Well done, Doug. Right way around this week. <laughs> Thank you. Last week I got you a mix up. Didn't confuse yourself. <laughs> but uh, you know, it took sixty-five episodes for me to make that mistake, so I'm pretty proud of myself. Well, it might happen again. That's but... that's right. We're on Route sixty-six today. We are. That's quite a big deal, Doug. Yep. And just like Route sixty-six, we have a lot of attractions to look at this week. Ooh, uh, full docket. Love your work. But we do uh, like to start the show with a fun fact, and usually the fun fact is related to the This Week in Tech History segment. Not this week, though, because I was just, it's been very cold here, and a lot of people have been wearing winter hats, and I was looking at a group of people, and I thought, what are those palms on the top of the hats? I don't, where did that come from? So I looked it up, and if you ever wonder why some winter hats have those fluffy pom-poms on top, apparently they were worn by French sailors in the olden days to protect their heads from banging against the low ceilings of ships while out at sea. They were especially effective in rough waters. So if you have a pom-pom on the top of your hat, you have a French sailor to thank for it. Oh, so it was actually like padding? Yes. I have a low, very low ceiling in our basement and laundry room, so maybe I'll go put a palm hat on and walk around and see if it helps, because I hit my head quite a bit. You could just duct tape a mouse mat. <laughs> Around, yeah. uh, you know, put on top of your head and duct tape it under yep. your chin. I don't know if they had ne- neoprene back in those days, but that's a, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, let's talk about, uh, we got a lot of stories to cover. This first one, uh, we have effectively ended ransomware with the alleged bust of the Revo ransomware crew in Russia. It's the end of ransomware as we know it, right? Well, even the Federal Security Bureau of Russia, the FSB, didn't actually say that. They did actually do a bust. You know, there's been a lot of criticism in the past of, our oh, well, Russians, I think, like Germans and French, and their whole other countries don't extradite their own citizens. So if you want to get people in those countries prosecuted for crimes they committed against another country, you basically have to provide the country with the evidence it needs. And there's a lot of criticism that, well, Russia didn't seem very willing to do that. In this case, looks like they were. Apparently, 25 street addresses got raided in a variety of different cities. They mentioned 14 people being targeted, though they don't say how many of those ultimately got arrested, but there were some arrests. 20 fancy cars towed away, apparently bought with the proceeds of crime. And like we've said before, there's probably a bunch of forensic data in the average fancy car these days, isn't there? in terms of entertainment systems, sat-nav, phones built into the car and all that sort of stuff. And something like 6 million to 7 million US dollars worth of rubles, US dollars, euros and crypto coins. So the FSB was quite bullish about what it had achieved, stating that as a result of the raid, this cyber gang ceased to exist and its criminal infrastructure was neutralised. So that's Revil. They didn't say it's the end of ransomware as we know it because obviously it isn't. There are two problems, even if Reveal really has sunk without a trace now, is that A, there are plenty of other ransomware gangs where Reveal came from, and B, sadly, there are plenty of other types of cybercrime involving crooks that have little or no interest in ransomware, but are still capable of doing plenty of evil, albeit that they're not Reveal. Yes, sir. All right. Well, a step in the right direction, nonetheless. 
yes, I don't think we can complain, but it's still all about patch early, patch often. Don't let your guard down. Prevention is better than cure and invest in your users. We've got more advice in our State of Ransomware 2021 report, which is linked to in the article called Revil Ransomware Crew Allegedly Busted in Russia, says FSB on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And let's just shimmy right along to another bust. A romance scammer who targeted almost 700 women has gotten 28 months in jail. As the National Crime Agency of the UK point out, in respect of romance scams in general, They say, we want to encourage all those who think they've been a victim of romance fraud to not feel embarrassed or ashamed, but please report it. The National Crime Agency can't make a case where somebody hasn't told them, hey, I sent money to this person and I now think I shouldn't have. Because after all, if they insist that they sent the money willingly and they don't consider that they were defrauded, then I guess fraud kind of hasn't happened. And that's a problem with the crime like this. Yeah, we do have a uh, one heartbreaking comment on the article and another kind of uplifting comment at the very end about someone's, one of our readers thinks his mom is being scammed and uh, she's not uh, reacting well to her family trying to talk her out of it. And then we have another one that caught a scammer red-handed, which was kind of an interesting story. Unfortunately, these crimes don't just leave people brokenhearted and destitute. They can also leave you with a giant rift in your family circle as you say that that guy said i my mom quit talking to me because i don't believe this is the love of her life the only advice we can really give is that if you have even an inkling that you might be in a scam no matter how heartrending it's going to be to have to admit that don't show the hand to your friends and family if they're trying to warn you they might be wrong but they could very very well be right So give them a fair hearing. Okay, we've got some advice in the article and a helpful video called Romance Scams, What to Do. So we talked about uh, listening to your friends and family if they try to warn you. We also have things like uh, consider reporting it to the police. Don't blame yourself if you get reeled in. Look for a support group. And most importantly, get out as soon as you realize it's a scam. Yes, my advice there very particularly is Don't discuss with the scammer, oh, I'm beginning to suspect you. I'll give you one last chance to prove yourself. Remember, if they are a scammer, they've reeled you in this far. Do you think they're going to have too much trouble with one little objection that you're bringing now? If you've decided it's a scam, don't tell them. Just cut contact and then go and look for a local support group. And by the way, be very careful if you break off connection with the scammers If you suddenly get contacted by somebody claiming to represent a support group or law enforcement or a company that can help you get your scammed money back, because that is the classic, what you might call, counter scam. When the crooks realise you really have decided they're scammers, then they come in trying to pretend to be the anti-scammers. There are numerous cases of people getting scammed twice. If you're going to withdraw from a scam, only deal with people you actually know and can meet and that you can trust face to face. Don't just take help from anyone who comes up offering it online. Could be the scammers coming back. Wonderful. The joys of human behavior. That is, romance scammer who targeted 670 women gets 28 months in jail. 
on nakedsecurity.sophos.com, and we shift from human worms to Windows worms. Whoa. Wormable Windows HTTP hole. What do we need to know about this, Paul? Yes, this was a fascinating start to 2022, wasn't it? It was one of the many security bugs fixed in this month's Patch Tuesday. Yeah, that was a big one. Uh, I think there were, yeah, 102 bugs. But one of them that didn't seem too harmful at first, perhaps because it didn't say this bug is in the Microsoft web server that everyone knows, <laughs> it was just described as HTTP protocol stack remote code execution vulnerability or CVE-2022-21907. So you kind of think, oh, it's some low-level code thing, probably doesn't apply to me. I'm not running IIS anyway. And in that sense, it was a little bit like the trouble we had with Log4j, where everyone said, oh, I don't have any Java servers. So no, it's not about servers. <laughs> it's about apps that are written in Java. Oh, I don't have many of those. Are you sure? Uh, well, I do have some of them, but not many of them run Log4j. Are you sure? And then as we've said on a couple of previous podcasts, when people would go looking for Log4j, they'd find, golly, there's a lot more of it than I thought. And the problem here is very similar, namely that HTTP.sys, it's a low-level driver that provides HTTP services for when you need a program that will accept and answer web requests, including IIS. So in fact, IIS is implemented on top of this HTTP.sys, but it's just one of dozens or hundreds or thousands of applications you could have that might use this thing. Any program you have, whether you realize it or not, that does contain some kind of web console or web interface or web port you can connect to could be at risk of this bug if you haven't patched. And what got everyone's excitement is, as Microsoft said in their frequently asked questions list for this particular patch, is this wormable? Meaning, could somebody use it to write a self-spreading virus? And the answer is, Yes. <laughs> they really did just put that one word. No, yes. no, yes, ifs full or buts. stop. Yep. Microsoft recommends prioritizing the patching of affected servers. Now, my opinion is that the wording of that was somewhat unfortunate mm -hmm. because it leads you to infer that this only affects servers because where else would you have an HTTP service listening than on a server? But of course, the answer is loads and loads of programs these days use HTTP as their, if you like, their GUI, as their interface, don't they? They have a web console, even if their program's designed for an end user. It's a function of a low-level driver in Windows itself, and that's what needs to be patched. I guess the good news part of that is once you've done this patch, every program that depends on HTTP.sys is implicitly patched with it because they all rely on the same low-level driver. Okay, what, playing devil's advocate, what, what should I do if I'm not able to patch right away for some reason? I came up with a fix which worked in my limited testing. Very, very simple. You just go into your registry, and we've got a script on Naked Security that shows you how to do this, and you change what's called the start code for the HTTP Windows service from the value 3, which means start when needed, to the value 4. And you just have to know that 4 means disabled, can't start. And that 
essentially fixes this problem because no software can actually fire up this driver. Therefore, nothing can actually use it. Therefore, the bug can't be tickled. The flip side of that is no software can use Mm -hmm. this HTTP service. So if it turns out that you do have an app without you realizing it, that part of its administration relies on a web-based console or a web-based API, then that's not going to work either. That is not a permanent solution. It's just a workaround. You ultimately need to fix this HTTP.sys file as part of the Patch Tuesday update. Okay, that is Wormable Windows HTTP Hole, what you need to know on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is time for this week in tech history. Lest you think we'd only talk about worms once this episode, this week on January 20th, 1999, the world was introduced to the Happy 99 worm, also known as SCA or iWorm. Happy 99 was reported by several antivirus vendors to be a pretty big pain in the neck. Believe me, it was jolly huge. And it had a trick that you will grudgingly like, Doug. Mm. The crooks did what you call the B thing, best slash brilliant. They avoided making spelling mistakes or typos or writing bad English. They avoided all those problems simply by having no text. Oh. Brilliantly simple, isn't it? Oh. If you have zero characters, then you must ipso facto have zero spelling mistakes, typos, grammars, etc. It just simply arrived and it was an executable and it said happy99.exe. And if you ran it, it showed you a little fireworks display. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, we've got two serious security articles lined up. The first is about a Linux full disk encryption bug that has been fixed, but what happened before it was fixed? Usually on Linux, when you're doing full disk encryption, you know, that's, the, that's the stuff that makes sure that if someone steals your laptop, it's, once it's powered off, the disk's just shredded cabbage unless you put in a password. And on Linux, you're probably using a thing called Lux, Linux Unified Key Setup. And to help you manage Lux, there's a program called Crypt Setup. And unfortunately, as often happens with full disk encryption, because it's so useful, Crypt Setup has an awful lot of features, probably a lot more than you'd ever imagine you needed. And one of the things that Crypt Setup can do, the option is called Reencrypt. And what it means is that instead of just changing the password that decrypts the master encryption key, it actually decrypts and re-encrypts your whole hard drive while you're using it. So you don't have to decrypt the whole thing and risk having it unencrypted for a while and then re-encrypted. All sounds fantastic. Except that what the crypt setup team did is they figured, hey, we could use the same code if someone needs to decrypt the disk, like they actually want to remove the encryption for some reason, or if they've got a disk that somehow never was encrypted and now they want to add encryption back. So you kind of think, well, those are just special cases of re-encrypt. So let's fudge the system. Instead of writing them as separate utilities, let's just do them as, if you like, deviant cases of (laughs) re-encryption. So to cut a long story short, it turns out that if you're using the decrypt or the encrypt rather than the re-encrypt function, then crypt setup doesn't take sufficient care about 
what you might call the metadata, the temporary data that records how far it's got. So somebody who has access to your computer but does not know your password and can modify your hard disk can basically trick the system into thinking, oh, I was in the middle of a decryption, but it broke halfway through. Now, if you tried to do that when the person was re-encrypting, it would go, uh-oh, someone's been tampering with your disk. You need to investigate. Mm-hmm. Those checks, if you were using the pure decrypt, were not made. So, in fact, somebody could get your computer while you weren't looking, fiddle with it, and then when you rebooted and actually put in your password, at least some part of the disk might get decrypted. And you wouldn't realize, but you'd end up with at least one little bit of your disk decrypted. Which means that if you're relying on full disk encryption to say to the regulator, by the way, if this laptop is stolen, I can promise you, I can assure you, there is no plain text data on here at all. Well, you might not be telling the truth because there might be a small, medium or large chunk of data that did get decrypted without you realizing it. And it gets worse. What a person could do is they could decrypt a chunk of your disk and then later come back. And if you haven't noticed, they could dig around in that decrypted data, which is no longer integrity protected. It's just plain text. They could make some cunning modifications. Maybe they could change your file name. If they could find fragments of something that looked like your browsing history, they could insert browsing history that made you look like a very naughty person indeed. Then they could run the bug backwards. They could say, oh, you need to re-encrypt this stuff. And the next time you booted and put in your password, your disk would, air quotes, heal itself by re-encrypting the stuff that had inadvertently been decrypted with unauthorized changes in it. Mm. So this sounds like, well, that's not really a bug, is it? But what it means is that somebody with your worst interests at heart, say, somebody wants to gaslight you, if they have access to your computer when you're not looking, they could, without ever having to find your password, stitch you up with data on your disk that's encrypted with your password. So they could say, how on earth could I have done that? I don't know the password. I can prove I don't know the password beyond reasonable doubt at any rate. If it's encrypted with your password, well, then you must have done it. And in fact, this was a little loophole that meant that that didn't necessarily hold. And therefore, you should get the latest version of the Crypt Setup program because it adds the checks that should have been in the pure decrypt and pure encrypt functions. It adds integrity checks that make sure that nobody tries to trigger them without actually having known the password in advance. And if you have Crypt Setup, the version you want is 2.4.3 or later. All right, you can learn more about that. The article is called Serious Security Linux Full Disk Encryption Bug Fixed Patch Now on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it feels good to be getting back into a rhythm, a cadence, where another week goes by and we now have an Apple bug to talk about. This one <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that, Doug. This is an Apple bug, and annoyingly, it's a bug in Safari, or perhaps more importantly, in WebKit, which is what you might call the browser engine that Safari uses. Well, then I believe I'll just go download Firefox for my iPad. I'll be just fine, Paul, right? Well, that's the problem Hmm. if it's not macOS, but if it's iOS or iPadOS, Apple requires all web browsing apps on iOS and iPadOS to use WebKit. So there, you don't really have 
a workaround, or more importantly, if you think, oh, I'll just go and get Firefox, it won't save you from this bug. So what actually causes the problem here? It is featureitis and complexity considered harmful yet again, Doug. What the? Uh, <laughs> again? Again, again. This is yes. a theme. As our listeners will surely know, what's called stateful HTTP data. In other words, things that your browser remembers so that when you go back to a website, the website can tell that it's you coming back. Obviously, that's good for tracking, but it's also good for things like, should I use the big fonts or the small fonts? Should I be in mobile phone mode or desktop mode? All of those things that you want to retain between one website visit and the next. Traditionally, those were handled by data objects called cookies. And without cookies, we'd never have had websites that allowed you to log in because the website wouldn't be able to remember, hey, this is the same person coming back. Now, it turns out the cookies are inefficient because when you send cookies, you have to send all the cookies ever set by a website every time you connect any page on that website, even if that page doesn't need them. And therefore, most browsers have a strict limit on how much cookie data you could have. So guess what happened? The browser people got together and they said, hey, let's have a thing called web storage which is like big cookies. And that you can access with JavaScript. So you only access it with JavaScript from a particular web page when you know you need the data. So you had cookies and web storage. There were two different technologies. One did not require JavaScript. One did require JavaScript. One was limited in how much state data it could save. The other was much more flexible and let you save much bigger objects. But even web storage wasn't good enough, Doug, because the funny thing seems to be that the more we embrace the cloud, the more we expect our browser to behave as if it were a locally installed application. So along came a thing called indexed DB, which is, if you like, a third type of cookie. So we've got cookies that go in the web headers. We've got web storage, which is a kind of loose, informal little mini database that JavaScript can access. And we've got indexed DB, which is nearly but not quite a browser-side SQL database. It doesn't actually use SQL, but it lets you store much larger chunks of data, like whole documents or whole sets of documents if you're doing a content management system, or massive images if you're writing a cloud-based image processing program, for example. Mm -hmm. So you've got cookies for small amounts of data, web storage where you need a bit more, and indexed DB where you want significant amounts of structured data because you know when two things can do something badly three <laughs> things can do it even better apparently <laughs> and the problem comes it's it's really tiny on safari or on webkit there's a special function called indexed db dot databases that when you call it gives you a list of all the currently active indexed db databases known to the browser but it gives any web page any tab any window any website access to the full list of database names it enforces the same origin policy that says that website x cannot read the indexed db databases of website y so a website can only access its own cookies, its own web storage, and its own indexed DB data. But all tabs can access the list of database names, which, as tiny as it sounds, turns out to be a step too far. Because as the researchers who found this, uh, it's a company called Fingerprint.js, they do looking for browser anomalies. As they discovered, 
lots of mainstream websites, when they create one of these indexed DB databases for their own use, they give it a bit of a telltale name. So they don't just call it Blah or DB. They'll name it in a way that indicates what service it belongs to. This is like saying to a crook, I've locked you out of all the data on my computer, but I will let you download a list of all my file names. Uh You can imagine there are a lot of secrets in your file names, Mm -hmm. so-called metadata. And the other thing they discovered, they they particularly looked into this for Google, but this is not really Google's fault, not blaming Google. Apparently, they use your Google user ID, which is, you know, some random string of characters. Now, that doesn't tell somebody who can list that unique identifier who you are. A crook with a website that's abusing this function won't know that Doug is this particular hexadecimal string. But every time Doug visits their website, even if Doug has tracking protection on that tries to stop them figuring where you've been, you'll come back with the same Google user ID if you're still logged into Google. So they won't know who you are, but they'll know that it's the same person coming back over and over again without setting any cookies or doing anything devious of their own. So it's almost as though this indexed DB databases list can act like a kind of a super cookie. So I don't know who it is, but I know it's the same person every time. That's information that you probably never intended to give out. And that's why this bug is important. Considering the effort that browser makers over the years have put into eliminating all this treachery that people could could do with so-called super cookies, you know, where you use things like which websites have you visited using HTTPS instead of HTTP as a way of signaling who you are? Which fonts do you have installed? What screen resolution are you using? All those things that people would dubiously use to try and fingerprint you as an individual user can be done here. And as we've lamented many times before, Apple aren't saying when they're going to fix this. But the reason that Fingerprint.js wrote about it now is that they can see from the open source components in WebKit that Apple programmers seem to be looking at this now. And they're beginning to merge in a whole load of changes which will fix this. There is a patch to Safari slash WebKit probably coming soon. Apple doesn't believe in telling you that it's coming. You just have to assume that it is. So watch this space. Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. That is Serious Security, Apple Safari leaks private data via database API. What you need to know on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is that time of the show for the own over the week. Reddit user Diligent Cockroach 700 writes. Does that mean there are 699 diligent cockroaches before him or her? I know. Imagine trying to secure that username and finally yeah. on the 700 Other usernames try. you might like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 700. So a lot of cockroaches. They're hard to kill. Back in the 80s, I was working for a telecoms company in the UK. We had a digital equipment corporation, PDP-11, that I was in charge of, which was in an environmentally controlled room. One Monday morning, I got to the office to find the computer was completely dead. I rushed into the computer room to find ladders, pots of paint, paintbrushes, and a giant dust sheet completely covering the PDP-11, which by now was so hot it was almost <laughs> glowing. And if, you, if no one's ever seen one of these, it's about the size of a refrigerator that you'd put in your kitchen. It's a giant computer. Apparently, the office services department had decided the room needed decorating, but didn't bother to tell anybody. I shut the power off to the computer, removed the dust sheet, and left it to cool down. Later, I tried to reboot it, but it wouldn't work. 
ended up having to call in deck engineers from the U.S. and replacing most of the fried internals. My manager made the office services department pay the several thousand pound bill out of their budget. So yeah, imagine a a giant computer the size of a refrigerator, how hot that would get, (laughs) and then putting a painter's tarp over it to uh, paint the room it was in. That was the world's most expensive paint. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm guessing that by now they've probably replaced that PDP-11 with something a little bit more uh, svelte, but... uh, we may never yeah, find out. Yeah, probably 10 times more powerful, like a it, Raspberry Pi Zero. Yeah, <laughs> a cell phone. Anyway, uh, if you have an oh no you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.